All right, well, let's turn there, Revelation 21, and we'll begin reading there in, in verse 1. But I guess just as a run-up into this, just know that the tribulation has come and gone. Uh, the second coming has happened. Jesus has come back. The battle of Armageddon been, has been fought. The thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth is, all, is over at this point as we head into chapter 21. Um, Satan has been released at the end of that thousand-year reign to uh, delude those that entered into the uh, millennial kingdom and the offspring of those who came in. Um, they rebel against the Lord one more time, and the Lord destroys them. And then Satan is thrown into the lake of fire where the false prophet and the Antichrist um, have been, and where everyone who rejects Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will be. So this has happened. All this has taken place. So as we come into chapter 21, we're coming into what is um, theologically known as the eternal state. So maybe you will hear this phrase, you know, the eternal state. Well, it's the eternal state begins after um, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so just to make a distinction before I get in here too far, is this we're going to read, read about a new heaven and a new earth. And so when Jesus ruled and reigned on earth for those thousand years, um, he is not going to rule and reign upon a new earth. He's going to rule and reign upon this earth that has been rejuvenated. It's been remodeled. It's called flip this planet. Not really, but you get the idea. It's going to be... Um, it's going to be, it'll be, the planet will be flipping in different ways. But, uh, but I mean, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be, a, you know, totally uh, reinvigorated. The gardens are going to uh, grow and desert places are going to blossom. It's, it's going to be amazing. I'll have to say, um, I don't know if that's going to happen instantaneously or that's something that's going to happen over the, the thousand year period. I'm really hoping and voting for an instantaneous recreation because it'll give us a little flavor of maybe what it looked like at the creation and how God just spoke the word and it all comes back to life. Well, we'll have to wait to see what happens. But this is a, a, that is a rejuvenated earth that Jesus has been ruling and reigning upon. Now we're going to read that all this passes away and a new one comes. So verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven... And the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. So at the conclusion of the millennial reign of Christ, um, a new world is going to be ushered in. And the old one is going to pass away. It's going to melt away. First uh, John 2, 16 and 17 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the, of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away. So the world is going to pass away. John talked about that. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12 says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So there's going to come a time in which this present world that we are familiar with is going to be totally um, redone. Now, when we talk about a new heaven, don't think about the dwelling place of God. Think about the atmospheric, you know, the, the planets and the stars. Um, th that's the part of heaven, not the, the abode of God. Why? Why does this need to happen? Well, when God created this earth, it was perfect. 
It was a, 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 a beautiful, flawless environment. But we all know what happened, and that is Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord. And we know that quite well that when that happened, that uh, corruption came to the human body. Uh, the Lord said, in the day that you would eat of the tree um, of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And we know about that. Um, death happens every day all around us. We can, we, we, we're very familiar with that. But there was something else that happened in this planet besides just mankind um, having limited lifetime. And, and so we, we can read about that. Genesis 3, 17 through 19 um, gives us a little hint about it. I want to read there. Um, it says, Then to Adam, he, God said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. So a curse came upon mankind, but a curse also came upon this planet Earth. And toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So we get that little hint that something's happened at the fall of man to this earth, and producing um, a garden and food became more difficult. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 20. For all creation is eagerly waiting for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, everything on earth was subjected to God's curse. That's Romans 8, 19, and 20. So this earth has come under this, uh, this fall, this curse. So why is the Lord going to melt this present world that we're familiar with? And why is he going to be, uh, bring a new one in? Because of the fall. The prophets of old spoke of this. Now, let me just give this kind of um, this qualification. Just like when you look back in the Old Testament, it's hard to determine between the first and the second coming of Christ. Like nearly impossible to do that. We can do that now. Having uh, had Christ come the first time and him announce that he's coming a second time. And we can look back and we can see what was fulfilled in the first coming. And we can anticipate what will be fulfilled in the second coming. Those things that are yet to be fulfilled. Uh, in a similar way as that first and second coming illustration, it's also hard to know of what part uh, are the prophets referring to a rejuvenated world and what part are they referring to about a new heaven and new earth. So when you look... Not always are you going to find people agreeing that this passage is about a new heaven and a new earth. But let me read to you two passages that give us an idea that the prophets knew that something new was going to come. Isaiah 65 verses 17 and 18 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. Or Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. 
So we, we see that the prophets um, spoke of this. We see that even at the time of Adam's sin, um, that there was an indication that the, this planet Earth had gone through some kind of change. Paul states it clearly in Romans chapter 8 that the Earth fell underneath the curse when Adam fell into sin. So this is going to happen. A new heaven and a new Earth is going to come. But what we do read there in that verse 1 is something is going to be missing. And now this is the great sorrow of every beachgoer. And there is no more sea. Look at the end of verse 1. Also, there was no more sea. Um, you know, I know a lot of surfers have tried to kind of rewrite this passage and reinterpret it. And why no more sea? Why no more sea? And here's the answer. The sea is often used of in the ancient world for chaos and for evil, where it generated from. Remember how we read about the beast coming out of the what? Out of the sea. And so the sea becomes this symbolic with that which is evil, that which um, separates. One author writes this. Paige Patterson actually writes, Some have argued that John looked out every day across the Aegean Sea. Remember, he's on the island of Patmos as he writes. So just a little personal perspective that uh, he looks out across the Aegean Sea to where his beloved church waited for him in Ephesus. The way was barred by the sea and therefore the sea for all of its beauty became a menace to John and stood for the separation of God's people from direct concourse with the Lord as well as with the departed dead and even many of those alive at the time. So the sea becomes symbolic of something that separates um, when God first created the world, um, there's, uh, of course, nobody was around to actually, um, you know, measure these things. But it's believed that it was very shallow and um, all the continents were together. And so after, um, after the fall, things began to break up and there's a, you know, you know, we now have different continents and there's this separation that took place. So in the new earth, there is going to be no separation. There's going to be no place by which evil can originate from. And so it is, um, maybe it's a, um, maybe it's a, 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 it certainly is a metaphor, probably a literal thing as well, though. So it's going to be different. There's going to be no sea. Verses 2 through 4, we get more details about this one particular place on planet Earth, this new Earth. And that's going to be the new Jerusalem. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her. It's not the bride, but this world is going to be so beautiful. It's going to be so decked out with the best of everything that it's going to look like a bride who looks her best when she walks down that aisle to meet her groom. So he sees this new Jerusalem coming down. Um, it's been suggested that this is the place that Jesus went away to prepare and that it's now done. It's now finished, unlike anything. It's the, the top of all the created um, places and planets and, and the universe. This place is going to be um, where God has done, if you will, his best work now, we can't say for certain that this is that place, John 14, 2, I'm going to prepare a place for you, as referring to this city. But I think it's a reasonable suggestion to ponder. And it's even been said that 
this, it, we do not read that it's created at this time, but it comes down at this time. And so some have suggested that during the thousand year reign of Christ, this, this new Jerusalem is already being inhabited by the bride of Christ, the church. And she's enjoying this and will make her way down to earth at the time she needs to, to carry out the, du- uh, the duties of ruling and reigning upon the earth. So, you know, we, we don't have a lot of concrete information, but it's just something interesting to, to ponder in your mind um, that this new Jerusalem will be uh, the place that the Lord has gone to prepare, maybe even being experienced by the church prior to this event. But then the whole is unveiled to all of creation, and it comes down. In verse 3, we, so we see the centerpiece of the new creation is the new Jerusalem, and fellowship is the centerpiece of the activities of this new world order that is going to be put out there. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. There's an emphatic statement. I mean, he could have said, God will be with them and be their God. But he says God himself. He adds the himself just to kind of draw our attention to this um, incredible uh, fellowship that's going to exist, an intimacy of fellowship that maybe Adam realized there at the garden, but I would even argue probably not even to the level that it is here because this is where, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And so the, the emphasis, uh, the, the city of emphasis on this new planet is Jerusalem. The activity that is emphasized is God's people being able to fellowship with him in a way that is um, going to be quite unique and it's going to be very amazing. It's going to be the, the, the activity. Now, for those who would say, I want nothing to do with Jesus, and if he ends up being the one, our God, and if it ends up being real in the end, then he can just take me there. You won't like it. <laughs> the person who wants nothing to do with God will not want this new Jerusalem and this new heaven because it's all about the Lord. And so it's for those that are the lovers of God, those that are the worshipers of the Lord. Um, Paul said, for me to be absent from this body is to be present with Christ. And to be absent from this body, or to, to be present in this location is going to have more Christ. You're, there's going to be such a level of intimacy and fellowship. And that is the noted feature. A few other things are going to be missing. We go into verse 4, besides the sea. We read, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. We live in a time of these former things. The former things, uh, verse 4, are the present things. We experience all of these things right now. And to a degree, they will even be experienced during the thousand-year reign of Christ. The Lord will rule with a rod of iron. Those who don't want to follow are going to do this. We read about those who will live to be 100 and die. will be like a, you know, a newborn babe. Um, we know there's going to be a rebellion that happens in the end. So although the thousand-year reign of Christ is glorious and amazing and a force of uh, righteousness will be imposed, we, we don't have this yet. And that's going to come. Now, for the believer, now we can't die. There will be no sickness. There's going to be no pain. 
But for those that are being repopulating the earth during that time, it'll still be there. Therefore, we will still observe it. Not subject to it. But the time is coming when no one will experience any of these things. So there will be no more sea. No more pain. All of these woes. There will be no more departure of a loved one through death. We'll no longer look on somebody who we care about who's dealing with some kind of emotional pain or some kind of physical pain. It's, it's all going to be gone. What a glorious place and time this is going to be. Verses 5 through 6. Um, the Lord wants us to know that what he is describing that is so amazing, this new created uh, uh, city, this, the new heavens. Um, and, and boy, if you're an adventurer, this is going to be your kind of place. You know, um, if you've ever wanted to be a pilgrim, I mean, excuse me, not a pilgrim, a pioneer and in going into a new area, hey, this is the, you're, you're going to have a crack at it um, because everything's going to be brand new. Um, and what we read in verses 5 and 6 is the, is, is the Lord doubling down on the reality that this is going to happen. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things. Circle the all. Everything is going to be made brand new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. You, write it down. You can, you can go to the bank on this. This is going to happen. This will be the second great creation of God for man. That we live on the first creation, but he's going to recreate everything. We're going to, we live in the present created world. We're going to see a rejuvenated planet Earth, but we also get to see a brand new heaven and earth. And the city of Jerusalem being the, the center place where the church will be with the Lord. Again, what an adventure it's going to be to observe all of these things. What kind of wonders does God have up his sleeve? that he's going to put out there that we have yet to know or even imagine. The Lord is amazing. He is a creator and he is an artist and it is going to be something to behold. And so we can have for certainty in our heart and mind knowing that this is going to come to pass. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. You know, um, a lot of stories and quests and, you know, have been centered around the fountain of youth. You get to drink of the fountain of youth and you'll never die. You'll never get old. Where does that idea come from? Well, the Lord promises that we could drink from him and we're never going to die. We're going to be fully satisfied. And um, Jesus offered when he was walking this planet um, for those who would come and align them, their lives with them. He used the metaphor, if you drink of me. If you drink of the water I give you, um, you know, you're never going to thirst again. And, and, and that was speaking of connecting our lives to him spiritually. Um, and so we see the same theme being played out. But um, I actually believe there is going to be a real fountain of water of life representing the eternal life that we have in Jesus. It's going to be pretty cool to be able to go to this place and, you know, stick your hand down into this fountain and drink of that water and to be able to symbolically, I'm sure you're not going to get eternal life from that. You already have eternal life. But to be able to drink from that symbol is going to be so, um, I think it's going to be exhilarating. We're all going to be running to get to the fountain. Well, I want to get drink from that fountain. 
What, what do we else do we read here? Verses 7 and 8, we read about the citizens. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Wow. Who are those that overcome? Well, we're told in John, those that believe in the Lord. Those who have faith in Jesus. And those that have faith in Jesus in the here and now are going to be those that will inherit all things. And we are called his sons. We're not like the Son of God, but we nonetheless are those adopted sons and daughters of the Lord. And as those who are connected with the Lord and his family, we will receive the blessings and the fullness of this new creation that the Lord has. How amazing. Again, we see the emphasis at the end of verse 7 upon the relationship. He shall be my son. Again, that place of fellowship, that place of relationship is being underscored throughout this entire chapter. So that's who is going to be the citizens of heaven. But who's not going to be the citizens of heaven? (laughs) Verse 8, but the cowardly, those who who did not confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And if you weren't here in our last two studies, you might want to go listen to those because we talked a lot about that. This heaven, this utopia, this perfect environment that the Lord is creating will not be corrupted by sin. Again, the thousand-year reign of Christ is going to be what the world should have always been, but there's still going to be that one element that's going to corrupt at the end. Um, But not in this scene, not in this situation. Satan, the false prophet, the Antichrist, and all of the people who want to walk after evil will be in the lake of fire which is an eternal uh, holding place, and nobody will be able to come and mess up what God has put together. In verses 9 through 14, we get a general description of the new city. We get kind of a, a picture of some of the, uh, the elements and the types of stones that are used that kind of deck out this uh, city of Jerusalem. In verse 9, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife, okay, the church. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So there is a, um, this, this new Jerusalem is significantly and uniquely related to the bride of Christ. Meaning this is her dwelling place. And this is the dwelling place of the Lamb. And so this is what he's being called to look at. But he's, he has to get a vantage point. So he has to get up on this incredibly high mountain to be able to view what's coming down. Verse 11 says, Having the glory of God, her light, was like a most precious stone, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So maybe you can think of like a, kind of like a diamond, something that's just, it's just electric looking. Verses 12 and 13, we read about the walls and the gates of the city. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So you'll see Judah, you'll see Simeon, you'll see um, Asher, all the different names of the the tribes of 
Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Verse 14, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So those disciples of the Lord. Now we know that when Jesus was conducting his earthly ministry, he had 12. As his life came to an end, he had 11. But in the early chapters of the book of Acts, we find that they draw lots to replace one of, to replace Judas. And the name of the guy that was, lots were drawn, that became the replacement for Judas was Matthias, which we never hear anything else about. So the, the great debate that we have amongst ourselves, which really has no significance at all, it's just an interesting conversation, is that 12th apostle or disciple, was is it Matthias or is it Paul who said he was one that was born out of time and calls himself an apostle? So we'll have to find out. Um, you know, we know who the 11 names are. Who's that 12th name? So when you get there, just write it down. When you get there on one of your sightseeing tours, go and look and see what 12 names are there. What's the 12th name? Uh, verse 15, the dimensions of the city. And he talked with me. Uh, oh, excuse me. He who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed. 12,000 furlongs, its breadth. Actually, uh, 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, and height are equal. So you got a cube is what you have. Then he measured its wall. 140 cubits according to the measure of a man. And that is of an angel. So from the description given here, it's been estimated that each um, side is going to be about 1,400 miles. So you've got a cube. Now, I said, I don't fully understand this, so I'm not going to pretend to. But all I know is that when you, when you, you fully utilize a cube, um, the space that's there, we're used to utilizing a flat space, but we got a cube, right? And so the ability to fully utilize this, um, Henry Morris, who's now with the Lord and has probably a really good understanding about all these things, estimated, I think it was something like, you know, every person having 75 acres, you could have 20 billion people living in this place. So the, the amount of space that's offered up by living in a cube, it's like, well, how can we do that? Hey, we're going to have a glorified body. Everything's going to be different. Um, so, you know, the limitations of gravity could be lifted. It could be a brand new um, environment uh, than what we know. So it's just huge. The point that's trying to be made, this, this place is, this city is massive. Um, I think one of the biggest cities in the world is New Mexico, and that's like 20 million people. This is, this is one that, according to those estimates, 20 billion with all kinds of space. Um, as we keep on looking, we get uh, in verses 18 through 21, we go from the dimensions of the city into the building materials. Okay? Um, you're not going to read about any uh, two-by-four uh, pine, you know, stick-built uh, city here. The construction of its walls was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The gold is so purified that it is actually clear. And the walls, again, kind of like a, a, a crystal looking. And so as you look at this, 
And you have the light of the Lord shining in the thing. It's just going to be a, like a, the best light show you've ever seen in your life. In verse 18, the construction of the wall of Jasper is like pure gold, clear glass. 19, the foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was Jasper, so this seems to be a favorite uh, building material. Sapphire, you think of the blues. Um, Chalcedony. Um, the fourth, uh, emerald. Fifth, sardonyx. Sardius uh, is the sixth. Um, sardonyx, the fifth. Uh, the chrysolite. Beryl. Topaz. Chrysoprase. Jacinth, and the twelfth is amethyst. So you, you have all of these different colors. It's green, it's blue, more green, more green, red and white, fiery red, golden yellow, aqua green, greenish yellow, golden green, violet purple. That's how all of these um, colors have been described. And this is what the Lord is using to uh, uh, build the walls of the city. All kinds of precious stones. Pretty amazing. The gates, verse 21, were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. So um, I guess before the sea is closed up, the Lord's going to do some harvesting. <laughs> so he's got some pretty um, active clams doing their thing, and they're going to be uh, an entire gate on these massive walls, one single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So it was going to be one impressive scene. So asphalt in heaven is gold. So, <laughs> you, know, you know, it's kind of funny. People like to, they have this thought they're going to be buried with all of this gold and all of this stuff. And it's kind of when you get to heaven, it's going to be like you, you know, if you, you know, were to show up with all kinds of gold in your pockets, it's like, ah, oh, you brought asphalt, huh? I mean, this stuff, it's a totally different economy. And um, the Lord, what well, you know, we value as the most precious things, and they're obviously valued here as precious too. Um, these are the building materials, just the building materials of this new city. Verses 22 through 23. Again, we see the emphasis of um, this city is the Lord. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The temple is a place where you could come and worship. But a temple is also a place where you would go to be reconciled to God. It's a place where a sacrifice would be made. It's a place where a priest would go on your behalf to represent you to the Lord and the Lord would and he would represent the Lord back to you. But in this place there is no need for the temple. Because redemption is a thing of the past. There's no looking forward to redemption. It'll only be a look back, and there will be no place for a temple um, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, Jesus, are its temple. We, you know, we're, we're going to have that direct interaction with him. You know, again, it's, I'm going to dwell with them. There's going to be no temple. So we're, we're reading about a closeness of proximity and intimacy with the Lord, the dwelling place of God. Verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. 
So the Shekinah glory of God. Many times we read about the bright light appearing as a presence of the Lord showed up. So think about this. You have the presence of the Lord shining like the sun, brighter than the, we've read in other places, than the noonday sun. And you have this light that's dwelling there in the new city of Jerusalem. You have these clear streets. You have these clear walls. And you have the light and the glory of the Lord. It's just going to be an amazing um, seen to behold and, and all these other stones that are going to stand out on these, the, the, this uh, you know, crystal clear um, uh, construction and they're just going to pop with color. But it, all of that is going to lead us back to the glory of God because it's his light that's giving life to you. Because you think about it, you could have a, a city like that, but if you have no light and it's in darkness, then what is it? You don't get to see it. You know, the more uh, important uh, or, you know, the higher end jewelry stores you go to, they lighting is a big deal. They got these precious stones, but they always want to illuminate it with the best light possible. That's why once you walk out of that store, you're, you're, you know, the jewelry, the stones you buy, they never look anything like they do there. You would have to buy their lighting system and walk around with it all the time to see it like that. But in heaven... You have a perfect light that's shining through these perfect um, stones, this perfect gold. And it's just, it just kind of lights up the, the entire scene. No moon, no sun. The Lord himself is the light. Kind of gives new meaning to the idea when Jesus talked about how he was a light of the world, huh? So you have the perfect light shining upon the most perfect stones and the perfect elements that have ever been created. Verses 24 through 27, we get a little bit more about some of the inhabitants of, of this place. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. So I would imagine this is referring to coming out of the, um, the millennial kingdom, those nations that made it through and did not follow the rebellion with Satan, and they are saved, they shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Now, we're there. This is our place. This is our home. This is your permanent dwelling place, right? As a follower of Jesus Christ. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And I remember as a little kid, I loved that idea of heaven. I never had to go to bed. And... Um, now I have a different opinion about going to bed. But, um, but I, you know, there'll be all the energy of a little kid. To, you don't, you're not going to have to do that. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. So in some way, this is where we're about, you know, one city in the new earth. And this one city, nations are going to gather. They're going to come into this place. They're going to come in kind of a, a parade fashion. And they're going to honor the Lord. Verse 27, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, we've, read, we've talked a lot about this. The only people that will make it into the eternal state, into the presence of the Lord, are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those 
who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who have embraced the lamb. Why the lamb? Because it was a picture of the sacrifice. Lambs in the Old Testament were offered up to cover sin. Jesus came as the lamb of God, and he was sacrificed on the cross, and his blood was shed so that he might provide a way. That's why we continue to refer to, the, to Jesus as the lamb. Well, his book is a book that has names of it of those that have eternal life. If you don't put your faith and trust in the Lord in this lifetime, you won't have opportunity in the next. It is appointed that man would live once and then face judgment. We keep on going here and uh, into chapter 22, and we'll get a few verses. It says, And he showed me, 22 verse 1, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Um, Ezekiel records a, a, a river that's going to flow, Ezekiel 47, out of, the new, uh, out of the new temple during the millennial reign. But now there's this, also this, this river of life um, that's going to come out from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life. What? The tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This tree is first seen in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.9 speaks about this tree of knowledge and good of evil. And the tree was forbidden, and an angel was put out in front in Genesis 3.22 of the garden to prevent anybody from coming and eating of this tree lest they should live forever. But that tree is in heaven. So there are these things that are symbolic of our eternal life. I mean, it's this river of water, and drinking from the fountain, eating from the fruit. You will be able to go up to this tree, and you can think in your mind, Adam, you should have done it like this. It would have saved us all a lot of trouble if you would have just waited till God opened up you know, harvest season for this, this tree. He went prematurely, and he disobeyed the Lord. But you're going to be able to eat of this. And every month, a new type of fruit is going to be produced and is for the healing of the nation. So, um, you know, presumably thinking of, again, coming out of that millennial kingdom and the devastation that will be upon planet Earth at the end of that last battle um, between uh, the Lord himself and Satan. Um, not Armageddon at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. In verses 3 through 5, we see what some of the activities are going to be in this new world. Verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So here's one thing that's not going to change. The Lord is still going to have servants, and we still are going to have the wonderful privilege to serve him. You know, a lot of times people have the idea, it's like, man, I don't want to be like a cloud potato when I get to heaven, sitting around, just strumming on a harp and doing nothing and just letting time pass all by myself. That's not going to be the case. There's going to be worship. There's going to be concerts going on. There's going to be a new world to discover and to rule over and to reign over. There's going to be um, opportunity to serve him in ways that he is developing and he knows in his mind. Verse 4, then... Excuse me, they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Again, the emphasis of fellowship with him is going to be like anything, unlike anything we've ever been able to experience. And verse 5, there shall be no light there. They need no lamp 
nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So again, an emphasis upon the glory of the Lord and the reigning and the uh, place of um, serving is emphasized. So um, actually, that is uh, as far as I mean. I think I said verse 7. It's just to verse 5 that I wanted to go to. As I wrap up, though, I want to make a comparison. And I think this is kind of fun. Um, and I'll let you go kind of dig this out a little bit more. But let's just compare our present experience of salvation to what we just read about in this new heaven, this new earth, in the eternal state. Um, Ephesians 2.15 says, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Under uh, the salvation we have in Jesus now, the division that existed between people was gone. In the new heaven, new earth, there's going to be no sea to divide. In Ephesians 5.25 through um, 27, we read about the church being a glorious church, not having spot or any wrinkle without, um, um, that she's holy and without blemish. And there's this, this conversation of the beauty of the bride of Christ. That's Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Well, we read about the beauty that's going to be um, in the dwelling place of the bride of Christ. There's going to be fellowship with God. That was all over these two chapters. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So in one sense, we have a down payment of all of these things here and now that we read about that we'll experience in that eternal state in a much fuller capacity. We read about everything becoming new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Um, thirst is satisfied. We see that fountain. We see that river. John 37-38. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. You see how we are having a similar experience? We're having a, a legitimate, full experience of the Lord even now. Um, we'll be made part of God's family of inheritance. You can read in Romans 8, 14 through 17 about the inheritance we have in the Lord. And then lastly, um, Ephesians 1, 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. There is going to be no unrighteousness in the world to come. But guess how we're supposed to live our lives? Without unrighteousness. And so in each of these ways, I don't know, what is that? That was uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, I could have guessed. Seven you know, elements of what we experience in our salvation right now that are going to be fully realized and have a symbolic um, uh, material thing we can interact around like that fruit or like that water or like meeting the Lord face to face. So I close with this. This is the city that Abraham was patiently waiting for. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs 
with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was waiting in faith for this city. We wait in faith for this city. And um, I pray that you are watching, and I pray that you're waiting for the return of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, this is... Um, this just so is, excites our hearts and it thrills our minds to ponder and to consider what it's going to be like. And whatever we come up with, we know that you have something even far better. And we thank you that you've called us to be a part of this, this life that we have here and now, to be a part of your church, to be um, with you when you call us up in the rapture, when we're with you as you rule and reign upon the earth, and then to be with you forever in this eternal state. Lord, we are so appreciative. We are so thankful. And I pray, Lord, if there's anybody that's listening to this promise of the life that's going to come, the eternity that awaits, Lord, I pray that they would be drawn to you and they would confess you as Lord and Savior. And I want to encourage you, if you're listening to this, if you don't know the Lord Pray and ask him to forgive you and let him be your Lord. Let him be your Savior. And he will put your name in that book of life. Amen.